Our reading this morning is from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello, HT, and it is great to be with you virtually, uh, though I'm so sorry that I can't be with you in person today. But I've got to say, I have now worked it out, how it sort of works in terms of my relationship with HT Cambridge. And that is very simply, when there's a tricky subject to speak on, the HT staff seem to get in touch with me to speak on the issue, and I have no idea why. So last year, it was uh, issues of sexuality that I came and spoke on a couple of times, and this This year, I've been asked to speak on the issue of judgment and hell. So neither of those things are particularly easy subjects to be addressing. And I am looking forward to the day when I'm asked to come and speak at HT on something a little less controversial. But nonetheless, I've got to say, I'm actually looking forward to speaking now on this topic of judgment. And I'm looking forward to it because it is deeply, deeply important. It's so central to the Christian faith. It's not a side issue, and yet it is not spoken about enough. In fact, from the very outset, I'd love to say this. I could not be a Christian if God were not a God of judgment. Let me say that again. I couldn't be a Christian if God were not a God of judgment. Because God's judgment, it is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. I mean, think, just in the last few weeks here in Clapham, where I'm speaking from, we have been right at the epicentre of an outpouring of grief and fear and anger at the abduction and murder of Sarah Everard. And we've seen in many of us and many others a response that has been a sort of deep, visceral desire for judgment and for justice. And that is a right and good thing. The truth is, this world is full of injustice. It's full of injustice on the big scale, be it murder, war crimes. And it's full of injustice on the personal scale too. You or I being mistreated. 
And if God is all-powerful and all-loving, God cannot just sort of sweep wrongdoing under the carpet, can he? God can't turn a blind eye to the injustices of this world and tolerate evil because that would not be loving. I would not want to worship a God that just ignored evil. No, God's judgment, it is a demonstration that God is loving. And in our Bible reading from the start of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, that's exactly what we see in verses 5 and 6. We see a a declaration that God's judgment is right, verse 5, that God is just, verse 6. So God's judgment, it is right. It is a good thing. That's the first thing that I'd love us to get hold of today. The second thing is that God's judgment is real. It, It does exist You know, there may be little moments of being able to say that something is a mark of God's judgment in the here and now, but it's so difficult to be definitive about God's judgment in the present. And the reality is that that all sorts of injustices, they happen in this world in the present, and justice isn't done. And so as a result, we might say, well, you know, perhaps God's judgment is not real. But when we look to the future, that is when everyone will see that God's judgment is real. Look at how our passage continues in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. But when's he going to do that? When will this, this judgment and justice happen? He continues, this will happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Paul there speaking of a future judgment. When Jesus returns. And judgment, it is a persistent theme in the Bible because it's inevitable. God, he is the true king of the world. We're the rebels. And judgment day, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, that is when God will bring his rule completely back over this world when he stops letting us humans rebel. God's judgment, it is right. God's judgment, it is real. And so thirdly, God's judgment is relevant. Because if there is a judgment, well, it has personal implications for every single one of us, for you and for me. Indeed, every single person who's ever lived, because we are all ultimately accountable to God. And actually, as we think back just to Easter, Easter is not just sort of yippee, you know, Easter, Jesus has conquered death. He's alive today. Of course, it is that. Yes, we should be celebrating because of Easter. But it's not just that. Because it's also Easter, watch out. Easter, watch out. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that Jesus is alive and one day he will judge this world with justice. Think of Acts 17, verse 31. It says this. It says, For God has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You know, the title of the talk that I've been given for today is Judgment, Are You Ready to Meet Your Maker? And the short answer is none of us naturally are ready to meet our maker. 
You've probably heard the sort of rather gruesome thought experiment of imagining you, perhaps you, you, know, you head outside with great excitement after months and months of lockdown because finally you know, you're allowed to meet as a group of six if you're outside and you know, if you stay socially distant and if it's a day of the week that ends in the letter Y or whatever it might be. And because you're so excited, as you perhaps head off to Jesus Green to, to, to meet your five other people for a COVID-safe picnic, in your excitement, you, you don't look for traffic as you cross the road and you you, you tragically get splatted by a Cambridge bus and you die. So there you are, you pitch up at heaven and Jesus says to you, why should I let you in here? Well, what do you say? How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to your maker? I wonder what you would say. See, the classic answers don't do it for Jesus. You know, Jesus, let me in because, because I'm good and nice. Jesus, let me in because I give money to charity. Jesus, let me in because I help old grannies across the road. Jesus, let me in because I religiously wash my hands and anti-back for 20 seconds still. You know, moral achievements don't cut it for Jesus, nor do, nor do religious achievements. You know, Jesus, I should get into heaven because I pray, because I read my Bible, because I took communion every week until COVID hit, because, uh, Jesus, I fast, because I can speak in tongues, Jesus, because, you know, Nicky Gumbel, Tim Keller, Mike Pilavachi, Amy or Ewing, they all prayed for me at the same time. No, none of those things will do it for Jesus. In fact, no answer that starts because I is going to work. No answer that starts because I will get us into heaven. In answer to Jesus' question, why should you or I be let into heaven? The answer, I think, is something along the lines of because Jesus has died for me. Because Jesus has done it all. Because Jesus has taken the punishment. He's taken the judgment so that I can go free. That is the kind of response that indicates we are ready to meet our maker. Simple belief and trust in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Think of uh, John chapter three, verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Or what about in our own passage? Look at verse eight. Negatively, what does it say there? It says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But then positively in verse 10, he talks about Jesus being marveled at on judgment day by those who have believed. So if we believe in Jesus... If we believe in Jesus, we are saved on judgment day. We have eternal life. We're ready to meet our maker. There's still an assessment of our lives as Christians, a giving an account of ourselves. I know Stuart's going to be speaking more about that next week. But the judgment concerning our eternal destiny, it revolves simply around repentance and faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so there need be no fear for the Christian about judgment day. We can approach it with calm, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of God. We're forgiven, we're justified, we're free from condemnation, we're heading for an eternity with Christ in a perfect new creation, not because of anything we've done, but all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is the most awesome future hope. But it isn't the case for everybody, is it? Uh, here on the screen is a sculpture, The Thinker, by Rodin. 
And you know, originally, Rodin entitled this sculpture, he didn't call it The Thinker. He actually entitled this sculpture, The Gates of Hell. And he did that because it was the thinker contemplating the fate of people who are not in Christ, who are not ready to meet their maker, who are going to hell rather than heaven. Now, it's, it's not a nice topic, but we must think about it. You know, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus, who is the most loving person who has ever lived, and yet he describes hell as a place of agony and torment, where the worm doesn't die, where the fire isn't quenched, where it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, an eternal fire. So it's no side issue. If we try and edit out hell from our Christian thinking, then we have completely changed the gospel. We have to recognize that just as judgment is real, so too hell is real. But please, can I urge you, can I urge us, let's not talk about hell glibly or nonchalantly. We should never talk about hell without pain and emotion. Jesus, he wept over the people of Jerusalem as he contemplated their fate. Paul wrote of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish he felt in his heart for the people of Israel. He said he was willing to be cursed and cut off from Christ if only thereby his people might be saved. For three whole years in Ephesus, he says, I never stop warning each of you night and day with tears. We need far more tears when speaking about hell. So what is hell like, according to the Bible? Well, we don't know that much about hell. You know, often symbolic language is used. I mean, hell, it cannot be a place of literal fire and a place of literal, utter darkness at the same time, can it? But what do we know about hell? Well, we do know this. We know, firstly, it's a place of punishment. Sin deserves punishment, and God will punish it. So Jesus says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So it's a place of punishment. Secondly, it's a place of destruction. You know, utter ruin is the idea. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And then as well, hell is a place of exclusion. It's common language of Jesus. We're encouraged, we're invited into God's heavenly banquet before it's too late. But one day, Jesus says, it will be too late. And then God will shut us out, saying, I don't know you, away from me, we're excluded. And you know, here in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, all three of these ideas are spoken about. Just have a look at them. It says, he, that's Jesus, he will punish those who do not know God. So that's the punishment idea. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. There's the destruction idea. And shut out from the presence of the Lord. There's the exclusion idea. And from the glory of his might. It is a terrifying picture. And it's terrifying because there will be people there universalism, the idea that all people just end up in heaven in the end, it's not in the Bible. And there's nothing about escape from hell either. There's, There's not some sort of second chance after death or the idea of purgatory. And it seems that there is conscious punishment forever. 
Some have advocated the idea of annihilationism, the idea that if you don't go to heaven, then you cease to exist. So the idea, either you're a follower of Jesus, you, you go to heaven after you die, or you're not a follower of Jesus, in which case you just cease to exist after death. And that idea, it comes from picking up the sort of destruction imagery of hell. You're, you're destroyed, you cease to exist. Now, I understand the, the desire for this to be true, that those who aren't going to heaven cease to exist. It avoids having to think about eternal punishment. But I've got to say to me, as I try and look at Scripture honestly, to me it doesn't seem to fit with what Jesus said and what the Bible says more broadly. Just to give one example, Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, those words of Jesus, they, they make no sense if those who aren't trusting in Jesus just cease to exist after they die. Now, all that I've said so far, all that I've talked of connected to hell, I'm sure it leads you immediately to have at least two questions. Two questions, is hell just and is God loving? Let me try and answer those. Firstly, is hell just? You know, does the punishment fit the crime? I mean, we, we may not be innocent, but do we feel we deserve hell? It feels a, a little bit like sort of giving somebody a life sentence in prison just for stealing a Mars bar, doesn't it? It feels like the punishment outweighs the crime. Well, well, the Bible says that what makes our sin so serious is not so much what we do, but who our sin is against. You know, imagine I'm driving my car and I hit a snail. It's, it's, it's no big deal apart from for the snail. Uh, imagine I drive my car and I hit a pigeon. It, it's not so good. Uh, imagine I drive my car and I hit a dog. Well, now it's worse. I'm now ab illegally obliged to stop the car. Uh, imagine I drive my car and I hit a person. That is far, far more serious, isn't it? It's who or what I have hit that determines the seriousness of the crime. And our sin, it is serious because it is ultimately sin not against people but against God. We have, as it were, driven our car into God. Do you remember King David committing murder, committing adultery? And he says to God in Psalm 51, he says, against you, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So sin, it, it isn't ultimately doing things wrong to other people. Ultimately, it is us declaring our independence from God. It is us turning our backs on God. It is us living life our way rather than his, rejecting his rightful rule over our lives. And it is because of the greatness of God that God isn't a little snail, that God isn't a local deity just for nice people in Cambridge, but that God is the eternal, almighty God who created everything. That is why our sin is so serious. And the result of that sin, that independence from God, is that God gives us, in effect, what we ask for. If we live our lives without him, he lets us spend eternity apart from him too. 
C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And you know, when we read Revelation, Revelation 16, verse 7, when God's judgment comes, the cry that is cried out is that God is true and just in his judgments on people. He will only do what is right, nothing unjust. Well, okay, you may say. Okay, maybe it's just, but it doesn't exactly seem loving, does it? You know, how can, how can you say God is loving if in his judgment he sends people to hell who are not trusting in Jesus? Well, first, God is not looking forward to people going to hell. Rather, God calls on all people to turn back to him rather than to face his punishment. Think of 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God longs for people to avoid hell. Every day, Jesus' return, it is delayed, and that is a sign of God's patience with us, God's patience with the world. And in fact, as we know, not only does God not want people to go to hell, but God has done everything possible so that we might not have to go to hell. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered more than just physical pain. On the cross, Jesus experienced hell. Jesus endured hell for us on the cross. The cross, it tells us how bad our sin is, but the cross also tells us how loved you and I are. God has acted. He has acted in history on the cross to give you and I a way out. Because the only way that a God of justice, a God who judges justly, the only way he cannot send you and me to hell is for him to take hell in our place. God doesn't want us to go to hell. But we and every single person on this planet, we have a choice, as C.S. Lewis said. We have a choice. Either we pay for our sin ourselves in hell, or Jesus pays for our sin on our behalf on the cross. And whether Jesus pays or we pay, somebody must because justice must be done. And so the only way, the only way for you or I to end up in hell, the only way is for us to trample over the cross, for us to disregard what God in Christ has so lovingly done for each one of us. The only way is if we just trample over the cross. Now, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us today? I'm guessing that most of you listening are followers of Jesus. Like these Thessalonian Christians that that Paul was writing to. And for them, the main reason that Paul is writing all this, it's to say in the midst of struggles, in the midst of persecutions and trials, verse 4, in the midst of suffering, verse 5, in the midst of troubles, verse 7, in the midst of all that, Paul is saying, please keep going. 
Please keep persevering. Please keep your faith in Jesus because even when the struggles and the sufferings and the trials and the persecutions, even when they feel unjust, he's saying, remember, justice will come. For, says Paul, on the day of judgment, verse 10, Jesus says he will be glorified in you and me and we will marvel at him. So as you listen to this, each member of HT, please, would you keep going? Keep going in your faith. If you felt your your faith flagging, if you've been struggling with all the challenges of the last year, if you felt marginalized by others for your faith in Jesus, can I encourage you, please, lift your head up. Look again in your mind's eye all the way to the day when Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you will marvel at him. And would you live now Would you live now encouraged and buoyed up in the light of that wonderful eternal future? But finally, as I close, may I speak also to anyone listening today who isn't yet trusting in Jesus' death on the cross to pay for your sin. And can I urge you with every fiber of my being, Can I urge you, please, today, would you choose the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you choose to put your trust in the one who has died in your place so that you need not face hell? Just listen to what C.S. Lewis again writes about the day when Jesus returns in judgment. This is the day when all of us will meet our maker. And this is what he writes. He says, it will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It'll be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so I say, please, please, would you take that chance today? If you haven't yet done so, today, Would you choose the right side and place your trust in Jesus? Shall we pray as we close? Let's pray. I'm just gonna pray a prayer that you might like to pray to echo in your heart if today you want to choose to put your trust in Jesus. So as I pray it, if you'd like to pray it, do just echo it in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing love for me. Thank you that you took hell for me in my place on the cross. And Jesus, I'm sorry that I have lived my life with my back turned to you, that I've rejected your right rule over my life. And today, Lord Jesus, I come to you 
I turn to you and I say, please, may I know the wonder and the joy of you paying for my sin on the cross rather than me having to pay for it myself on judgment day. Jesus, please, would you come into my life by your spirit and thank you that today I can know complete forgiveness and that from today I can know a relationship with you that begins now and continues past death into eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.